This morning we are looking to God's Word in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We've been working our way through this book approximately a chapter at a time. And this morning we come to the second vision that Daniel himself receives. Not about the events so much that are going to affect the world as he has seen and interpreted for kings in the previous chapters. But a vision that specifically concerns the world and how it relates to the people of Israel, his own people. So this morning, let's turn our attention here and let's begin at verse 1. And I would encourage you to follow along as I read. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but the one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and as he was enraged against him, struck the ram and broke into two his horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, and he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of the heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It it grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offerings was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of boldface, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and his own mind shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. May God bless the reading of his word. Here again, we have a chapter that deals with things that are to come in Daniel's future. And it's, again, important for us to understand these things are revealed not to Daniel and so to us, simply to cause end-time gurus to salivate over charts and diagrams. That's not the point. They were given to a people that were in the midst of suffering and who were going to be in the midst of greater suffering to give them hope about their circumstances. And even so, from chapter 7 to chapter 8, the focus now shifts from the larger concerns of the nations to Israel itself. If you remember back in chapter 2, we said that the language of the book shifted between chapter 1 to chapter 2. Not just the tone or what it's talking about, but literally the language. The book began in Hebrew. The book of the Hebrew people, oddly enough. Uh, the, The language of the Israelites because it was given to one of their people for them, but there was a dual concern. For in chapter 2, the language then shifts to Aramaic, if you're reading it in the original, which was the trade language of that area across the nation of Babylon. And that carried through until chapter 7, this great chapter that ends with this great vision of all the major kingdoms up until the coming of Christ. Now in chapter 8, the language goes back to Hebrew. Why? Because after showing how God reigns over all the nations of the world, the focus is again on his people. The the, the vision here of history from God's perspective now helps us to focus back onto his people and shows us that that is where his concern and his compassion fundamentally lie. He is showing Israel that he has not abandoned them, that he will continue to be with his people and even restore them from not only the current exile they're in, but from the disaster that is going to befall them in the future. As the people of God today, we can not only draw certain spiritual truths from this vision that was given to Daniel, but we can also take comfort and hope in what it says even as we await Not just the end that the people of Israel were awaiting in this chapter, but the very end. The end that will come when Christ himself returns. So this morning we want to see how it is the people of God should go about waiting for the end. And what we will see is that we should should wait by remembering three things. We should wait for the end by remembering three things. (coughs) First of all, remember that you have a spiritual enemy. Remember that you have a spiritual enemy. 
This vision is connected to the one that we read about in chapter 7. In Daniel's words, this one appeared after which that appeared to first to me. In other words, the, the vision of chapter 7 came first, and now shortly after, he's given this vision in chapter 8. And much like people in biblical visions... Uh, find himself appearing somewhere in the vision, so also here he finds himself in Susa by the Ulai Canal. And here we begin to realize almost immediately, if we're reading closely, something different is going on. Because in the previous chapter, it was simply by the Great Sea, which could have been anywhere, uh, any wind. And yet here, now there is a greater level of specificity to the vision that is given to Daniel, which tells us, again, this is not simply generically for the nations, but this vision is now getting, drilling down closer to the specifics of the people of God. In fact, we are given easily identifiable kings and empires, whereas before there were vague intentions of the coming empires. After identifying where he is in the vision, Daniel sees a ram with two horns, one larger than the other. Furthermore, he says this ram is charged in every direction and cannot be stopped. And it seems at first impressive until this male goat appears. The goat has a prominent single horn and moves so fast that its feet don't even touch the ground. And it comes out of the west, moving across the whole world, and it zeroes in on the ram and defeats him, shattering its horns. As the goat itself becomes more powerful, that single horn is broken and four more horns grow up in its place. And from those horns comes a little horn, which in fact becomes mightier than all the others and in fact even goes against, he says, the glorious land, that is, the physical nation of Israel. Doing so, we are told this little horn even comes against God himself, taking away the regular offering of the people and overthrowing the temple. And notice what Daniel sees in verse 12. All of this came about because of transgression. That is, because of the sin of God's people. Now, when Daniel hears that, he would have been in anguish. In fact, at the end, he says he's appalled by what he sees because he sees the coming discipline and judgment that is going to fall on his people because of their transgression. And yet, even here, he is given comfort and he is given hope because the judgment that comes uh, through this little horn is not one that goes on indefinitely. In fact, it is a specific time for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state, he is told in verse 14. Daniel sees all of these things and wonders, what in the world does all this mean? And God himself knows Daniel doesn't know what it means. And so he instructs the angel, tell him what this means. Explain to him what the vision is and that it is for the time of the end. Verse 17, the end of what though? That's what we want to know, right? Maybe even what Daniel wants to know. And at first we don't know because Daniel himself is now so overwhelmed with this vision, he just kind of goes, ugh, and passes out. And the angel has to come and put his hand on him and say, come on, you know, strengthen up here, man up. We got more to see here. That's not the first time that he passes out. It's not the last time he passes out either. The angel says, behold, I make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. He is telling him that the vision that you see is for the end 
of this specific time of discipline God is sending his people through because of their repeated sinful rebellion against him. And he tells him specifically, here's what these things represent. The ram with two horns, he says, is the Medo-Persian Empire, with the larger horn representing the more powerful nation of Persia in this alliance. We're also told that the goat is Greece. Now, with the angel giving us this this clear understanding, identifying specifically these are the nations, uh, on this side of history, we simply look backwards and see how all these things are fulfilled. We know that Philip of Macedon united the early Greek city-states, and that it was his son Alexander the Great who became, in the words of verse 21, the first king of Greece. Alexander established the Greek Empire, expanding its borders all the way to the very edges of India. And along his path of conquest, he defeated Persia. He took down, as it were, the ram. Alexander, though, died at a young age of 33. And when he died, his empire was divided up amongst his most powerful generals. Have any idea how many? Four. Four horns. Four generals that we're told about in verses 8 and 22. Now, at this point, from a historical perspective, this seems like a big deal because we know just how amazing and powerful Alexander the Great was. even have movies made about his life, books, so many other things, and yet it's small potatoes in the context of this vision. Remember, remember the focus is not world history anymore. The focus is the people of God. And from the perspective of the people of God, Alexander the Great isn't that big of a deal. It had very little effect on Israel, but rather now this one who is to come, this little horn, he becomes more important, devastatingly important for Israel. This little horn that we read about is the one who became powerful and even pressed in on the people of God. This was the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV, who became extraordinarily brutal and oppressive in his reign. Furthermore, he was consumed with pride and even took on the appellation Theos Antiochus Epiphanes, which means Antiochus, the illustrious God. That's hubris, isn't it? Interestingly enough, behind his back, though, instead of calling him Antiochus Epiphanes, people called him Antiochus Epinemes, which meant Antiochus, the madman. His attack on the people of God began when he assassinated the Jewish high priest, Ananias III, and replaced him with his own man. He continued off into war, seeking to conquer Egypt, and rumors began to come back to the land of Palestine that this man Antiochus had died. And they wanted to believe those rumors, and they did believe those rumors, and they removed the man that he had put in charge of the temple and put one of their own Levitical priests back in. However, it was just a rumor. He, in fact, was not dead, and when he came back, he saw what they did as an act of rebellion against him. And in his wrath, Antiochus attacked Jerusalem with almost 40,000 people dying in the span of just three days. Others were taken captive. But the ultimate act of wickedness came as Antiochus entered the temple, moved through the holy place into the Holy of Holies, and sacrificed a pig on the altar of Israel. He again put his own high priest in charge and left again for Egypt. Again, he failed, and he came back venting his anger on Israel. Sinclair Ferguson summarizes well what happens next. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews, assembled for worship on a Sabbath day, and committed further atrocities and vandalism. The temple was left without the daily sacrifices. Religious practices were deemed non-existent, and a statue of Zeus 
was placed in the temple where human sacrifices were made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden. Unclean meat was mandatory fare. And the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. Can you imagine being a Jew during that time? Can you imagine not only having the temple of your God defiled, but them forcing you to eat food that you had been told by God was unclean, that made you unclean in His sight, that brought a separation of you spiritually from Him? And yet they're forcing you to eat it. Even in, even in committing that sin, as it were, then wanting to go and to go to the temple and offer sacrifices, no more could that be done. For an idol of Zeus now stood in the Holy of Holies, and all sacrificial worship to Yahweh, the one true God, was forbidden. It would have been a terrible and devastating time. And yet, it only lasted for three and a half years. That's roughly 1,150 days or 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices, just as verse 14 said it would. In 164 B.C., it all came to an end as the Maccabee resistance, Jewish freedom fighters, as it were, rebelled against Antiochus and through guerrilla warfare forced him out of Israel back to Syria. The word Maccabees means the hammers and tells you something about the way they went about their warfare against Antiochus, seeking to avenge the people of Israel. You can actually read about all this in the apocryphal books of First and Second Maccabees, which aren't scripture but are fairly reliable history. Now what do we make of all this? Well, among other things, we might say that one of the most important things that we need to remember as God's people is, is that we will always have enemies. We will always have enemies. More than that, we will always have spiritual enemies. Do you remember what Daniel was told? And as this man is powerful, but not because of his own strength. There was a more powerful being who stood behind Antiochus and the atrocities he had committed, namely Satan himself. And through Antiochus, he was seeking to wipe out the people of God. The battle of the godly seed of the woman and the future-to-be-damned seed of the serpent that began in Genesis 3 continues not just through this time that Daniel foresees, but even to today. The battle still rages on between the people of God and Satan through the world. Bodies weren't just falling in this war. The very way of life of God's people was under threat as their ability to keep the law and offer the sacrifices were taken away. And friends, loved ones, you understand, nothing, nothing in that regard has changed. In fact, it's probably only gotten worse. I've shared before the statistic that's quite startling. In the last 100 years, there have been more Christian martyrs than in the previous 1900 years combined. Never believe that the war has stopped, that the war is over. Because in Satan's mind, it isn't. There is still an enemy who wants to do nothing more than to see you steeped in sin, running or drifting away from God. And for us, the, the reality is the quicker that we understand we have a spiritual enemy who is out for our souls, the quicker that we understand we have no promise Now, until the return of Christ, that says we will escape persecution. If your view of the end says that, I think you need to go back to the Bible. 
Because Jesus says the exact opposite, and we will see that at the end of our sermon this morning. He says you can expect tribulation and suffering right up to the end. And the quicker that we understand that that is the reality of our life, we have an enemy, we should expect persecution and suffering, then the quicker we will be equipped to move forward with confidence and faith and hope in the one true God. As we wait for the end, we remember we have a spiritual enemy. But this leads us to the second thing. You remember you have a sovereign king. Remember, you have a sovereign king. You know, when I was in eighth grade, we had the student teacher uh, who was finishing up her degree in college. And for a while, one of the things that she wanted to do was lead our English class through a unit on poetry interpretation. And that seems like about the right thing to do in eighth grade, right? But rather than go through the classics like Milton and Dickinson and Keats or something like that. Instead, she decided that to get us more involved, we would interpret the poetry of song lyrics. So our assignment was to pick a song, any song we wanted, and to write down all the lyrics of the song and turn that in, and the teachers would decide which ones were appropriate for the class to go through. I won't leave you wondering. I picked an MC Hammer song. We've got to pray just to make it today. We got Okay, that's, what it, that's all you get. So... So, you know, I mean, at that point in my life, all I listened to was jazz on NPR and and whatever my dad had on the radio. And I just, I had no interest in music. And I thought, what am I going to do? My aunt had given me this MC Hammer tape. I liked it. And that's what, that's what we went with. Someone else, however, picked what is probably considered a more classy song, a Bette Midler song called From a Distance. And I remember even in eighth grade, as we picked apart the meaning of the song, I was given enough spiritual discernment to like it less and less and less as the hour went on. If you've not heard it before, the song pictures God as some far-off deity, one who stands at a distance from the realities of life, the realities of disease and poverty and war and suffering. And thus, while God is loving and caring and benevolent towards humanity, he is so far away, so far removed from the realities of life that, in fact, the realities are blurred in his vision so that he can't see the problems of human existence. They all kind of fade away into this, this kind of uh, haze whereby everyone, everyone is a friend. No one is hungry and everyone is at peace. Loved ones, that's not the view of Daniel 8 nor the rest of the Bible. On the contrary, we are shown that God is with us even in the most terrible of circumstances. He is with his people. He has not forgotten them. And more than that, he is sovereign over everything that happens in their lives. And he is sovereign in two ways. First of all, he is sovereign over our enemy. Think about the comfort of the exiles that they would have taken from this vision. From what they can see, these kings and kingdoms are unstoppable. They are powerful and exalted, dominating nation after nation. But from God's perspective, what are they? They're simply shaggy little farm animals running around all over the place whose destiny lie in his hands as the divine shepherd. This is helpful when we think about our own everyday experiences of life, which often seem large and threatening to us. It could be anything from our health to relationships to a boss at work. It could be anything. And the call for us is to remember that God is our sovereign king, to view them not from our perspective, from what we can see here, from what others peoples can see and tell us they see, but to remember how God sees these things, to view them from his perspective then we will know that whatever beastly monsters we think we have to deal with, no matter how menacing they seem, when viewed from God's perspective, they're weak and pitiful. 
the reality of an all-powerful, all-sovereign God who reigns with complete and utter authority over all things. Refocus your vision. What seems terrible to us is simply overgrown sheep to him. What seems powerful and terrifying is weak and pitiful. This is even true of Satan himself. He is the enemy of our souls, a prowling lion seeking people to devour, a demonic farmer longing to sift God's people like wheat, yet he is nothing to God. He is nothing to him. This morning in Sunday school class, I I shared what Martin Luther said. He said, yes, Satan is powerful. Remember, Satan is God's Satan. He's a created being. He's on a leash. He only goes as far as God allows him. What's more, now that Christ has come in Colossians 2, it says that God disarmed spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. You can imagine the demonic forces arrayed against against God's people, weapons in hand, and through the death and resurrection of Christ, he utters a word and they fall to the ground with their weapons dissolving in their hands. They have nothing left with which to fight. And the people of God look at them and laugh as they have been disgraced to the victory of Christ. Loved ones, Paul goes on to say we are raised with Christ. So his victory is our victory. Satan has no authority over your life. He may inflict pain. He may cause us to hurt. He may tempt us to sin. But we need not give in. Because he is a defeated foe. We said earlier, he does not know the war is over, but God does. And we know from his word, Satan is a defeated Satan. Because the eternal Son of God took on flesh and dwelt among His people and allowed Himself to be killed on a cross so that He might put to death the spiritual forces that threaten to undo us from our own sin to death to hell to the devil and his demons. They were all rendered impotent for God's people. Because God is sovereign over our enemy. More than that, He is sovereign over our future. He is sovereign over our future. Do you remember how Antiochus was described? Verses 24 and 25. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and by his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, God himself. That sounds like a terror-inducing vision to me. But what does verse 25b say? He shall be broken. For according to verse 19, though he raged against Israel, it is only for the appointed time. God, in fact, numbers his open disgrace and rebellion down to days. He doesn't just say, well, it's going to come for a while. God has the number of days. His leash is going to be extended throughout the world and against God's people. Three and a half years. Why is that significant? Well, if you remember from verse or chapter 4, rather, we saw that seven years, seven years that was given to the Babylonian king was, in fact, symbolic of a perfect or a complete, a full period of judgment. Yet what does God say? God says, it will be cut short for my people. The judgment, the suffering, the persecution, it will not go the full measure, but I will cut it in half because I will not abandon my people. 
It's important to remember these things because so many of us want to get caught up in end-time speculation and sensational predictions. So many have done the very thing that Christ said not to do, which was worry about the date of his return. And in fact, in doing that, we are, we are wrestling God's sovereign and wise control away from him and trying to make ourselves the master of our days. Several years ago, a pastor named Harold Camping believed you can map out the timetable of Christ's return by using a chapter like this for an apocalyptic timetable. In 1993, he published a book with all this information whereby he predicted the coming of Christ in the year 1994. 1994 came, and as you all know, we're still here. Christ did not return. And so he quickly realized, oh, I forgot to figure in the Jewish calendar. And so making revised calculations, he published another book saying 1995 was the appropriate time for Christ's return. Judgment would fall on the world. Well, 1995 came, I graduated high school, went off to college, and we're still here. And yet unwilling to admit defeat, Camping said, well, you know, I think it actually was like Jonah. People repented, enough people repented, and God held back the coming of his wrath. Another favorite is Hal Lindsey, who came into fame in the Christian world by writing a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. Several books followed, each one coming out and never quite saying it, but clearly wanting you to believe that surely God's return was imminent within just a few years of the writing of his books. And yet book after book after book has been published and Christ has not returned. One time in a previous church, we had a weekend prophecy conference, and I was saddened that this man had been allowed to speak at the pulpit of our church because the man was something of a smirk, pointed to Mark 13. And so I know some of you are worried because Jesus says we can't know the day or the hour. Because I agree, but doesn't know we can't know the month of the year. My point in giving these examples is to show how foolish we can be and get getting caught up with trying to figure out when the end is going to come when what we need to remember is that God is sovereign over our future he has set the exact time and the limit to every spiritual battle and in the end the war itself and though we do not know when Christ will return he does he has set the stars in their courses he has fixed the times in their places to determine the date again to seek to know the future in that way is to try to manipulate God and to put our arms around him and say, we have you figured out. And God will not be mocked like that. We've been told that there is an enemy, a spiritual enemy. And as we wait for the end, we must remember his existence. We must remember that we have a sovereign king, not only over that enemy, but over our very days and lives right up until the end. Therefore, rather than speculate about things and ignore our enemy, the last thing we should do is remember that we have a sacred calling. Remember that you have a sacred calling. The temptation for some people who get caught up in ministries that focus on the latest headlines to advance theories about Christ's return is to effectively drop out of society. There's a sense of anticipation that throws off the mundane realities and responsibilities of life and causes one to live in a sort of midpoint between reality and and fantasy. At least one commentary author that I read had a friend who got so caught up in the camping predictions, he actually ran up all of his credit cards and said he had no concern to pay off the bills because surely Christ would come 
and all those things wouldn't matter. Now, most people don't go that far. Nevertheless, many of us allow ourselves to forget the calling that we have been called to in light of the fact they have a spiritual enemy and a sovereign king. Notice how Daniel responds to the vision. Verse 27. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. First of all, notice he didn't just care about himself. He knows this vision is for like hundreds of years in the future. He's told, seal it up, uh, protect it, because it's going to be a long time before this happens. And yet he doesn't say, oh, well, I don't worry about that then. He realizes he is part of the people of God, and therefore he is appalled by what he will not see, but what will come. He is sick for days, not just in all the vision, but by the weight of the vision, the weight of the spiritual realities that do not rest lightly on him. But then second, notice he gets up and he gets back to work because he's got a job to do. He doesn't scare or worry himself into inactivity. He doesn't go hide in a corner. He gets about the king's business. He keeps living life as he normally would. And friends, ultimately, that's how we wait for the end. That's how we wait for the end. You know, many years ago, there was a book published called If I Only Had One Sermon to Preach. The point was obvious. They contacted all these famous preachers and said, if you only had one sermon to preach, what would it be? And so maybe some of them, you know, wrote, Fresh sermons, I imagine some of them probably went back in their archives, found the best ones, polishing them up, and, and, and submitted them into this collection. But there was one Presbyterian minister from South Carolina uh, in Columbia, and he didn't do that. Because he believed the principle of Daniel here, and that is, even if you know the end is near, you keep on with your duty. So he talked to the elders of his church, and he said, I think I just want to submit the sermon that I've got coming up for this Sunday. And they said, okay, that's fine with us. So that's what he did. It's whatever he was going to be preaching on, that's just the sermon that he finished up and he mailed in. And so you've got these sermons on the theology of the virgin birth of Christ, the atoning sacrifice of Christ, and you've got this man's on Christian tithing. (laughs) It's the same attitude that's reflected in John Wesley when a man came and said to him, Mr. Wesley, if you were to die this time tomorrow, what would you do with the remaining 24 hours? To which Wesley pulled out his itinerary from his pocket. He read it to the man and he said, that's what I'll be doing in the next 24 hours. As God's people, there is the king's business to be done. And we don't know when the end is going to come, so we don't freak out, we don't panic, we don't throw our lives away. We say, what is the business of the king? And we get busy doing it. If you are a child of the king, if you are one of his servants, there are at least three things that flow naturally, I think, from this text by way of application. Three things that we need to be about the business of doing. If you've heard the gospel of Christ, if you've heard of Jesus who died to save sinners, to bring them to God by taking the punishment for them, and you have trusted in him to be your savior, you've been brought into the kingdom, these are three of your standing orders. First, you are called to pursue fellowship with God. You are called to pursue fellowship with God. Notice that in his efforts against the people of God, Satan used the powers of this world to stop the daily sacrificial offerings. For three and a half years, he tried to cut off God from his people. He was trying to circumvent the regular pattern of the life of faith. And loved ones, Satan is going to do the exact same thing with you. He is going to come at you from every angle he can, poking and prodding until he finds your weakness. It's going to get you to slag off your responsibility to seek God's face on a regular basis, to maintain intimacy and fellowship with him. But remember, this is the sacred calling that we have. 
the privilege won by the shed blood of Christ to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength, to walk with Him as our Heavenly Father. Therefore, as you wait for the end to come, whenever that may be, faithfully strive in your calling to pursue fellowship with God. Secondly, we are called to preserve unity with God's people. We are called to preserve unity with God's people. Sacrifices not only connected the people to God, but the temple connected the people to one another. They would regularly gather together as the people of God to worship Him and to offer sacrifices to Him. More than that, like the Babylonians before Him, Satan through Antiochus was trying to erase the identity of God's people by outlawing their obedience to the covenant. The goal was to bring division and disunity and despair to the people of Israel. Likewise today, Satan delights to find God's people in disarray. He delights to see them running around, fighting one another, bickering, harboring ill will, and nursing bitter thoughts. Yet what did Jesus say? Not just to love your neighbor as yourself, though that is certainly a command, but also to love one another, even as he loved us. That is to love God's people with such commitment and depth and intensity that you can see the love of Christ for them in the way that we love one another. Community matters. Relationships matter. Fellowship as God's people matters. Therefore, as you wait for the end to come, whenever that may be, faithfully strive to persevere in your calling to bring unity to God's people. Finally, and this is my favorite, Finally, we are called to plunder the house of God's enemy. We are called to plunder the house of God's enemy. Unlike Israel, we are not called to dwell in a promised land and enjoy the fruits of God's blessings that come from obedience, calling people to come to us. We are called to go. We are called not just to maintain a kingdom, but to proclaim and extend a kingdom. Loved ones, this is an amazing time to be part of the people of God. Because on this side of the cross, Satan's ministry has been curtailed. You understand that the warfare he waged in the Old Testament throughout the nations and against Israel is nothing compared to what it is today. Do you remember what happens in Luke 10? I know you remember what happens in Luke 10, but I'm going to remind you anyway. Jesus sends out the 72 disciples for the first time, commanding them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal diseases as a sign that the kingdom was to come. And they come back excited because people are responding to the message. People are healed. Even demons flee at their name. And you know what Jesus says? He says, in all of this, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What is Jesus saying? He is saying, Satan... Satan does not have the same ministry that he used to have. In fact, in Mark 3, do you remember Mark 3? I know you know Mark 3. Jesus says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying, I have come and I have bound the strong man. My kingdom has broken into this world and he can no longer go about deceiving the nations, hindering people from coming to God. But now my gospel will explode through all the nations and I will gather together a people that is unimaginable to him or to anyone else, ultimately in fulfillment of the promises of Abraham. Because I have bound the strong man and we are now going into his territory to plunder his people and to redeem them for God. That they might know the joy of their Savior. 
while he used to come and go and deceive the nations, now King Jesus stands over him, as it were, having bound him with chains, with a scar-covered foot across his neck as the church advances to the darkest corners of the world with the light of the gospel. Oh, loved ones, as you wait for the end to come, whenever that may be, faithfully strive in plundering the house of God's enemy. Faithfully strive to preach the gospel and make disciples. History shows that though the Axis powers were essentially defeated on D-Day with the invasion of Normandy, Hitler didn't quit. The war was finished, but the battle raged on. In fact, the bloodiest battle of World War II, the Battle of the Bulge, came after Hitler's certain defeat. Likewise, Satan has been defeated at the cross. He can no longer deceive the nations as the gospel goes forth. Nevertheless, he desires to throw the entirety of the forces of hell at God's people. This is why in John 16, Jesus tells us that living in this world means enduring suffering as his people. But he gives us hope. He says this, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Therefore, as we wait for the end by faith in Christ, we should follow Peter's advice and be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Father, I pray that that is something that we will be able to do as your people by the power of your spirit. Father, I pray that we would be sober-minded. We would know the reality of life between your son's first and second coming. That we would be watchful for our adversary. We would know we have a spiritual enemy who is out for us. But, oh God, that we would take comfort and assurance and have hope in knowing you are a sovereign king. And you are sovereign even over our enemy, even over our very lives. Therefore, with that encouragement, I pray that we would be a people who resist Satan, our enemy. That we would remain firm in our faith, knowing that any difficulty, any tribulation that we experience is not unique to us, but is one that is common to all of your people in this world, even as a defeated devil rages vainly against you, O King. Father, as your people, help us to faithfully wait for the return of your Son, not with inactivity, but with striving and joyful work to advance his kingdom. We pray in his name. Amen.